0: Hello folks welcome back and if you're a new listener welcome to the show you're listening to the High Performance Human podcast and I'm your host Simon Ward. Before we get into this week's episode I want to talk about what it means to be a high performance human. It's got nothing to do with how fast you swim, bike, or run contrary to what you might think but it has got everything to do with your sleep, nutrition, physical activity, personal relationships, work habits and so much more and if these are areas you'd like to improve on then we'd love to help you I currently got availability to take on a couple of clients and my wife Beth who's a certified life coach also has some availability so depending on what you're looking to focus on we've got you covered and you can find contact details in the show notes. Today we've got the first of a two-part broadcast with part two coming next week. Way back in 2000 I decided to rebrand my coaching business as the triathloncoach.com. i had been coaching for four to five years and built up a good roster of age group athletes Now I was having to turn folks away, so I asked my friend if he'd like to join me. His name was Jack Maitland. Jack and I started to grow TTC as it was known, but that wasn't all. In 2001, we put our names in the hat to run the Regional Talent ID programme in the north of England on behalf of British Triathlon. Having two coaches at the helm wasn't quite what British Triathlon had in mind, but we persuaded them anyway. And that was the beginning of Performance Triathlon in Leeds. A few years later, the Leeds Performance Centre was born with Jack at the helm, and the rest, as they say, is history. Of course, it's easy for me to say that because I saw all this happening firsthand. So in this episode, we're going to talk with Jack about his journey from orienteer to mountain runner to elite triathlete, and then into coaching. We discuss our work together, his work in Leeds, and then the development work he did with Alistair and Jonathan Brownlee, finishing this episode at the end of 2011 when Alistair was a favourite for Olympic gold at London 2012 triathlon. It was a great trip down memory lane for both of us and I do hope that you enjoy it as much as we did. So let's crack on and hear from Jack. Good morning Jack, welcome to the show. Good morning Simon. Uh, You have been on a guest as a guest before with Kirsten and Louisa when we talked about uh, vegan lifestyle Uh, That was quite a while ago, but uh, we're we're six years into the podcast now, and I can't believe I've never invited you on before to talk about coaching, so firstly, my apologies. Uh, That's no problem. Happy to be here now. Um, So folks were reminding me or pointing out to me the other day about an article that was written about you and your coaching journey uh, for Try247 by our friend John, and um, when I read it, I thought, wow, it's over 20 years ago since we started working together. Um, at the beginning of the 2000s. But of course, um, your journey in triathlon and sport goes back a long time before that, doesn't it? So for the, for those folks who don't really know much about you um, and your life before triathlon, shall we give them a flavour of that? Okay, well,
1: I'll give, a, I'll give a quick go through that. Yeah, um, I started doing a lot of sport at school, got into orienteering um, in my sort of teenage years and um, progressed through the sort of Scottish junior orienteering squad to the British junior orienteering squad and then the senior orienteering squad for uh, for quite a few years. Um, so that was my first serious sport and as part of becoming good orienteer I had to become mm-hmm. a, a good runner as well so I started running. Um, <clears throat> and then when I went to university um, in Aberdeen I was um, still primarily an orienteer but I did start to join I joined the cross country club there the Heron and hounds and partly through colin donnelly who was one of the other club members there I got into the hill running and uh, was doing that alongside my orienteering and a few years down the line I um basically got a little bit impatient about where my orienteering career was going and um, and got more into the, the mountain running, which is where I was, sort of, I was kind of getting some kind of easy success there. So then I spent quite a few years um, primarily as a mountain runner, but I did just about every other form of running going as well uh, through that time. Um, but I got into triathlon in... Uh, So the mid 80s, I was out in New Zealand working, um, making orienteering maps, actually. And um, one of the guys that I was working for um, was also organising the local triathlon on Topo and um, suggested that I should have a go at that. So I hadn't done any swimming for years, but I started going to the pool with him and his son. And uh, obviously I could run. I was riding as a means of transport so yes I ended up doing three triathlons in New Zealand um, for over that sort of season um, and came back to Europe and was still mostly doing the mountain running circuit out in the the Alps primarily but one time I think it was the following year Um, after a a race, got into a bit of a conversation about um, the fact that I'd done a few triathlons and the locals were telling me, well, it's it's the triathlon here in Annecy next weekend. You should do that. And I said, oh, no, I can't do that. I don't have a bike with me. And they said, we'll we'll fix your bike. So they borrowed me a bike from the local bike shop and um, yeah, ended up doing the Annecy triathlon as well. And that was my first one in Europe. And from that point on, I then started to do a few in in the UK, and it was in the fairly early days of triathlon, sort of um, latter part of the 80s then, and I did it alongside my mountain running right through until um, 1989, when we knew that the triathlon was going to be in the Commonwealth Games as a a demonstration event Mm. in the following year, and from the results up to that point, I was fairly sure I could get in the Scottish team if I just and did one of the selection races so after that year's world man running cup came home and went and did the scottish triathlon team selection race uh, got into the team went to the commonwealth games uh, enjoyed that and from that point i realized I could probably get into the the British
0: squad. So that's a very quick (laughs) summary of your athletic career and probably doesn't give folks a flavour of the level that you were competing at. Now, um, I mean, if anyone's read Feet in the Clouds, which is a a sort of like a, it's a nice coverage of um, the British fell running scene, your name appears frequently there alongside people like um, Billy Bland and um, Kenny Stewart, who would have been a main competitor of yours, and... um, in Holmes as well, who's still active in 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 the sort of Haworth area, um, and you had some pretty you you had some pretty handy results in the fell racing scene in the UK, didn't you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I won the British Championships uh, uh, one year, 1986, and had a few years when I was running pretty well on the domestic circuit. Uh, John Wild and Kenny Stewart were the were the two outstanding. Athletes at the time, and I was I was fairly good at coming third behind those two. I was very not so good at ever beating them.
0: Didn't didn't you break the record on Ben Nevis one year? But Kenny Stewart got there just a few seconds in front of you. Uh,
1: yes, I did. Um, I'm not quite sure where I stand in the all time list and, and the Ben Nevis times, but it must be fairly high up because I was I was leading when you hit the road at Akin T with a mile to go. Oh. But but to be fair, Kenny was only just behind me, and he he had the extra speed. And that happened a couple of times to me. Um, and I've you know, similarly at Snowden, I think I came second when Kenny set the record. So um, you know, and, and these records still stand.
0: Yeah. And then um, you were telling me recently when we were having coffee that you've just been to the fiftieth anniversary celebrations for that big fell race or mountain race, not fell race in Switzerland, Sierzenale, which you won one year.
1: Yes, that's right. So um I went out to do some European mountain races um the uh, when I started doing the the, the sort of fellow running more seriously. And uh, yeah, rather flukily one Sierra in on a first attempt. Um and um it's a fantastic race and you know, they look after the sort of traditions of the race really well. So they had invited all the former winners back for this fiftieth uh, birthday.
0: Not uh, many brits in that list though, you told me.
1: No, I think um, I think there's there's only sort of four maybe four British men, five British women that have, have won the now.
0: Mm. And um, further afield, I um, you you were a regular out in Nepal, weren't you?
1: Yes. Yeah, so in '89, in I went out and did the Everest Marathon, and um, you know that was a that was a whole experience and fantastic to go to nepal and i actually spent about 10 weeks out there with a lot of acclimatization and and everything to to prepare for that event uh and as a sort of consequence of that then when i switched to doing triathlon i started getting invited to go out and do the annapurna triathlon and i did that numerous times i think five six times
0: and one
1: i won it all but once when i had a double puncture that
0: I think, I know, <laughs> I think you remember tell, you telling me that they, the locals wanted to win the race, so they put a relay team of Gurkhas in, was it? Or locals to try and beat you, but you still managed to get home ahead of
1: them. Well, that, that was the Everest Marathon, yeah. Oh, okay. So there, were, there okay. was a team of Gurkhas doing the Everest Marathon. They were, they were they had prepared very thoroughly and, and they were very fit um, and, and well-prepared, but they didn't have the racing experience that I had.
0: Mm. And uh, you also went out to... Um, Cameroon mm. didn't you win a race out there? Um,
1: yes, the Mount Cameroon race that's definitely the hardest event i've I've done um really uh severe four thousand one hundred meter high volcano virtually on the equator, so um a lot of environmental mm. difficulties there heat altitude yeah humidity and just a relentless climb and a relentless descent um on on rough terrain so yeah, the first time I did it i blew up spectacularly, uh, lost a significant lead that hadn't ended up fourth and uh, on a stretcher. Um, but on my second attempt, I managed
0: to, right. to get it a little bit better. A nice, I think you told me it was a nice prize out there, although you couldn't bring it home with you.
1: Well, yeah, the, I, I mean, I, I won, I think it was uh, 288 bottles of Guinness, um, but I did <laughs> manage to get it home because... Okay. Um, they arranged for this export grade foreign extra start, um, which they also brewed in Dublin, to be um, yeah be transferred over to, to eventually to Leeds.
0: Wow, so okay,
1: had a couple of good parties.
0: <laughs> so I'm talking about Leeds. So you you um, I, did you say you were in you were at university in Scotland, but then you were you ended up in Leeds at some point, didn't you?
1: Yes. Yeah, so I did my first degree in Aberdeen and then after a year out making orienteering maps and skiing in Norway and things like that I came down to Leeds to do a postgraduate
0: so what and what were you, what did you study in for your first degree
1: Um, first degree computer science
0: okay so not sports science nothing that might have pointed you towards the coaching world
1: well yeah but as i <coughs> you know the uh the main thing I did at Aberdeen was orienteering, with a mm. sort of, you know bit of running on the side.
0: Okay, and then so you came to Leeds.
1: Yeah, I came to Leeds, did a postgraduate ed, um, diploma in education, so teacher training, in other words, um, in mathematics and outdoor activities, which, which actually was on my uh, on my timetable officially then, um, but still, yeah, orienteering and, and increasingly running. Right, and.
0: Uh, amongst, the, amongst some of the hardened running fraternity that was in Leeds, you lived in a particularly interesting household, didn't you? Um, had its own athletics club.
1: Well, I mean, I, I shared houses with runners as, you know, as students tend to do. And um, yes, at one point when we were in Weatherby Grove, we had um, quite a number of high performing athletes living in the same place.
0: Was it called DOS AC,
1: your group? Well the DOS AC is just the uh Leeds University Cross Country Club's oh, okay. past members uh club.
0: Okay. Anybody that we might know that was there, that was significant?
1: Um well, I mean there was there was a, a, a lot of good runners there um around that time, people like John sherburn Greg Hull, and Buckley. um Helen Purdy was a, a very good uh, Ironman triathlete mm, who uh, owned perhaps, that yeah. house, yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay, so uh, you got a taste for living in Leeds then, because you've been here ever since, really? I have, yes. Yeah. What well, was it about Yorkshire then? Was it? I mean, was it the running scene that attracted you here? Um, so it's like, I'm going to go for running and I can study as well. And that seems to, for a lot of sports people, that seems to be something that drags them to the place where they study. Yes, okay. it was. I mean,
1: that... Living in Aberdeen, you you get fed up with the travelling. You know, so there's a lot of <laughs> a lot of of uh, driving or or train journeys and getting back late on a Sunday night, early Monday morning, often after going to events. So I was looking to somewhere more central. Uh, I would I'd already made some friendships with people in the university's orienteering club, cross country club. Um, so, I mean, I applied to Leeds, Sheffield and Lancaster. So I was mm. looking for the, the north of England, obviously.
0: Okay. So let, let's go back to triathlon then. So you did that um, demonstration event, triathlon in, in 1990. Um, do you remember who you were competing against then? Any of the significant athletes? that
1: have- Yeah, well, I, I was the fourth Brit. And the first Scot behind one Englishman, uh, one Irishman and one um, uh, Welshman. The Englishman was Bernie Shrewsby. And, yeah, Bernie, yeah. Um, yeah, and Ken McLaren was representing Wales. So, yeah, so there were a few people that were sort of well-known
0: athletes. Okay. I, I had John Hellermans on recently, um, and I think he was still competing as a triathlete then, wasn't he? I think he might even have been in the squad to race for New Zealand I don't know if you made the final cut I'm not 100% sure but Rick Wells
1: won it I'm fairly sure for New Zealand okay I got Helen Baker on the ladies side I think
0: okay well they both went on to do big things (laughs) in in triathlon Um, okay so then you you got the bug for triathlon did you continue with your mountain running after that point or did you throw, throw throw your hat in with triathlon
1: um, from 1990 onwards, yeah, I, I was pretty much just doing triathlon. I, mean, I think coming back from that Commonwealth Games, I, I thought, well, the British team was a possibility for me. And I think during the mountain running years, I, it was much more of an individual sport. Uh, I'd quite like being in the squad for the orienteering. So I think that was an attraction to me to to get into the, the British squad for the triathlon, um, which subsequently did. Uh, and started doing a few competitions for, for GB.
0: I mean, you would have been at the top end of triathlon in those days with Bernie and maybe Spencer Smith, uh, Robin Brew, yeah. and Simon Lessing. Yeah. Um, but triathlon wasn't as developed as it was or it is now, and as people know it now, was it possible to make a living from the sport then at all, or did you have to do uh, uh, work on the side? Uh, Well, it wasn't possible for me. I was a sort of um,
1: semi-professional. I had a sort of part-time job. Usually I was working in a couple of running shops for some of that time up and running here in Leeds. So, yeah. But I think that for some of the other guys who went fully professional, sort of Glenn Cook and Robin Brew, you know, they did manage to make a living from it.
0: Yeah. And uh, at that point... I mean, for a lot of people, don't really know about triathlon before the Brownies when it went and, and when it when it sort of got into the Olympics in 2000. But Simon Lessing and, and Spencer Smith, who were racing then, were highly successful, um, winning multiple world titles. And some of those races were pretty spectacular, weren't they? In the, in the performances that they put out.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, they were they were class athletes, and yeah, I was I was um, fortunate to be in teams with them on a few occasions.
0: Mm. Yeah. Did, during this development of your, um, you know, your athletic career, did you have any coaching influences? I mean, you've not mentioned being coached as a runner um, or a fell runner. Was there were there such things at that point?
1: Um, there definitely wasn't in the running. For orienteering, list it was it was unusual to have a, a running coach, and, and certainly in mountain running, I don't think I know anybody who was actually coached. Um, in orienteering, it was it was much more normal, and I had a, you know a couple of people who coached me um, when I was an orienteer, uh, but not so much in the running. And then, of course, when I took up triathlon, triathlon was such a new sport. There was no such thing as triathlon coaches, mm. um, so we were. Either, you know, you were going to a swimming coach in order to get work on your swimming and and, and so on. It was more sort of single discipline.
0: Yeah. Um, So at what point during your athletic career did you think, Well, bearing in mind what you just said, that there there wasn't such a thing as full-time triathlon coaches then, at what point in your career did you think that coaching might be something you'd be interested in once you weren't able to race full-time?
1: Um, I don't really (coughs) think I saw it as a career at all at that point, but I was being asked for advice about running because I could run and people therefore assumed I knew in some way what I was doing. Mm. Uh, And in in the same way that I'd be asking Robin Bruce advice on swimming because, you know, he uh, obviously could swim a lot better than me. So there was a bit of trading of um, experience between different members of, of the squad and and just more generally in the triathlon world. So I was known as a runner. So people would often ask me to come maybe coach a run session on a, um, a training day, that type of thing. But of course, I had zero coaching experience. I'd not done any coaching at all at that point. But, you know, I was happy to help people out and give some advice. But I did think it would be a good idea to Get some training, so I did then do sort of British Triathlon Coach Education Awards. Um, first
0: couple of levels, yeah. I think you and I might have been on the same one, it was it one of the very first level threes? It might have been,
1: yeah. We definitely did a level three together. Um, that was a little bit later, then wasn't it? Because I think you'd already asked me to um help you out with some private coaching um, through the triathloncoach.com, and we. We'd maybe started doing our level threes then, but we certainly hadn't finished because I remember us sort of making a pact to get all our coursework
0: done and uh, make sure we qualified within the year. Oh, that's right, yeah yeah let's let's sort of keep each other honest and get this, get the this stuff finished <laughs> exactly um, yeah. and it wasn't very long after that, was it that um, British Triathlon announced that we were going to have these regional academies.
1: Yes, exactly. So in 2001, so post the Sydney Olympics, um, up until Sydney, which also was the first um, Olympics that had triathlon in it, there'd only been a senior squad because the emphasis was on getting a, a, a well-prepared team to Sydney. But afterwards, it became fairly obvious that triathlon needed a pathway and to develop youngsters in order to fill this future teams. Um, So yeah, British Triathlon um, set that up and um, we applied to do the sort of talent ID and development program in the north of England.
0: Yeah, it seems, I mean, it's 20 years ago now, but it seems like yesterday, doesn't it, (laughs) really, when we started and we didn't know what we did, really, what we were gonna do.
1: No, I I don't know how much of an idea we had, really. but I guess we both had our, our own experiences that we brought to. I had my experiences having been on a junior squad as an orienteer. Um, I had my experience having been on a on senior squad quite recently with Scotland and, and to some extent GB. And then you had your experience of working in professional sports teams.
0: Yeah, and I we, we had a, a regional academy manager called Paul Buxton who I thought was brilliant. And he gave us this really nice um, syllabus of what he expected the athletes to be able to do. I, I wish I could find a copy of it somewhere because uh, it, I'd love to have a look at and remind myself of that list. But I remember it wasn't just about the performance times that they had to do it um, for 200 or 400 meter swim and one or three K run. It was things like um, be able to make their own breakfast, be, you know, be, be proficient at cleaning their bike, you know, some, other stuff, admin stuff that you would expect athletes um, to be able to do, and we also had a, a brief of putting on these monthly camps, um, which seemed great. But they, but apart from putting on a monthly camp and getting everybody in the squad together, we had a fairly free reign, didn't we? And we took it.
1: Yeah, and no, I think even how we used the the sort of contact days that we were. Contracted to do was 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 up to us, and we and we did go for the sort of weekend um, camps in order to sort of maximise the amount of time that everybody spent together. Uh, we had a fairly large region, didn't we? So people were travelling quite far, um, but uh, yeah, no, we, we we got a fair bit of good guidance from Paul,
0: and we uh, uh, because of that, the fact that we had that big region, we we wanted to make it fair to those folks who were coming from the northeast or from Lake District or from. Um, the sort of Lancashire area, Cheshire, Isle of Man Yeah. Um, by having camps in different places so I think we went to uh, well we definitely went to every February we went to North Yorkshire and we took them potholing and running across the fells and mountain biking um, we went to I remember we went to Sheffield one year yeah, did, did some stuff in the pool we went to Manchester and used the Commonwealth Pool and the track uh, yeah,
1: the and that was a, yeah. a fun
0: day um, well, did we go to the North East one time?
1: Yeah, we used um, an outdoor velodrome in Middlesbrough one time. Yeah, um, yeah. So we did, we did. We definitely did move around the the region and um, try to use the facilities that we thought perhaps were a bit more interesting, and you know, mm. make make things very
0: varied for the athletes. And I remember we took all the athletes to the was it the Stockton relays one year, and we had them working as teams, racing as teams in the event there.
1: Yeah, that's true. We did that. Yeah, yeah. So uh,
0: I think we gave them a broad, <laughs> broad range of experiences, and it was, and we got a lot of coaches, didn't we, as well, to help us because uh, that meant we built a team. So we had local coaches that would be able to work with those local athletes, um, and and uh, and help us there. And um, I, I feel like we we were actually ahead of most of the other regions, although we just thought we were doing our job.
1: Yeah, we we had interests in, in in coach development, and we, we had little satellite groups at one point in the northwest and the northeast, and, and obviously we were in Yorkshire and Humberside So, what's now um, three separate uh, academies at the time was was all one.
0: Yeah, so it was definitely a a learn as you go type of experience, but I, I think overall we did we did a pretty good job, and it was it was a lot of fun along the way, and. Uh, I think we actually um, fulfilled the brief, didn't we? Find talented young uh, girls and boys that can swim and run um, and uh, see if we can win some medals with them.
1: Yeah, well, in that regard, we were, we were quite fortunate in some of the raw material that we had
0: <laughs> that came along. Well, you, you have to work hard for your luck, don't you? <laughs> um, but, you know, we still had to go out there and provide them with that opportunity, which wasn't there before. And uh, I guess if that, if you don't harness that, um, talent and give it the opportunity then um, sometimes it's lost isn't it? Well I think I, I think that's absolutely
1: the thing, what you have to try and do and I believe in this sort of sphere of, of talent idea and development is you have to have a good program so that people have you know, they have the choice of choosing triathlon as a good pathway as opposed to maybe going into some other sport because often these athletes are talented and one sport they've got a fair number of sports they could actually become very good at you know Um, and you see that little areas of excellence in especially in these slightly minority sports Mm. uh, will just come up around a school or a a, a city or even an individual coach because they are providing the
0: best quality in, in that area I can remember that one of the young lads um, that came under our wing was local, actually, um, Scott Thwaites, and S- Scott was an excellent cyclist, but his running and his swimming wasn't quite up to the level of the um, the standards that have been set. And you know, we used to have those time trials um, in October and March to see who would come into the squad, who wouldn't. And Scott was sort of, sometimes he'd be in, and, and of course we needed to build a squad as well in the early days, so it, we had to bend the rules a little bit just to build the numbers up. Um, and Scott's dad was always a little bit disappointed that we had to say to Scott, look, you're just not making the grade now. Well, come on, he's, he's a good cyclist, you should put him in on that. And I think in the end, one of us suggested that maybe we could introduce him to Shane Sutton and the guys over at Manchester, and that Scott should go and see them, and I feel like that one worked quite well. Yes, exactly. And, it, and it's probably not the only example of that. There's, there's,
1: there's various <coughs> little, and, and, and it's always going to happen, of course. You know, I think um, if you talent ID for just the traits that you want in a high-performing athlete, then they're not necessarily sport-specific. The thing in triathlon is that because swimming is a skill-based, mm. early maturation sport... It's very, very difficult to become a senior elite triathlete if you haven't had a grounding in a swim programme when you
0: are younger. Maybe we'll come back to that a <laughs> bit later. Um, that's always an interesting point as well, isn't it? In those early days, and going back to that specific example I just given by about Scott, the brief was to, to find girls and boys that could swim and run on the basis that if they had the technical skill for swimming and that would help them to build an engine as well from a young age and and the sort of discipline of being in a program and swimming regularly and that they could run so they'd got that sort of just because running is quite technical. I think people forget about that. You know, Running well is still reasonably technical. Then you could actually, they've got all the skills. They've got the engine and the, the coordination in order to be able to cycle well and then with an, enough volume you could build that up. That was a model that, that lasted quite a long time in terms of talent ID, wasn't it? But but was pretty successful.
1: Yeah, I think it's still a good model. You know, I think I think this very little doubt that cycling is a late maturation sport, and you can you can uh, transfer over from other disciplines and become a very good cyclist mm. uh, later in life. I mean, Beth's a, a classic example
0: of that. Yeah, well, well, we'll come back to that a bit later. So. That regional academy thing, the Talent ID program, lasted what for f- f- about four years till after the Athens Olympics, and then was at the point where we were sort of thinking about um, sort of like a perform more of a performance centre based in Leeds. I, c- I can't remember when that what the timing was. Well, no, actually, was, that's
1: was slightly different order to that. So we actually we actually set up the performance centre in Leeds in two thousand and four because we quite early identified that. we we had this sort of good junior squad going but a lot of the athletes were then choosing to go and move to other regions in order to go to university or to join a sort of um, squad of of slightly older athletes Um, and we felt that Leeds would be a good venue for a performance center Mm. so we um, were asking speaking to British Drafton about it, and then we also started to speak to the, to the universities and particularly Leeds Met Universities, it was at the time. Um, so, yeah, we got that set up from 2004. Mm. And we then ran that performance centre at Leeds from that point um, alongside the junior squads until 2007 when... British Triathlon, under pressure from UK Sport, um, actually completely stopped the Tom ID and Development Program. So uh, and closed the tried to close the centre down as well. I got made redundant, um, and the idea was that all resources would go into senior athletes who were going to Beijing in two thousand eight, um, and that who would centralise operations in, in, in the triathlon that would be around Loughborough.
0: Mm, yeah, i just wondering at the point where I stepped back, because I think you you definitely wanted to be involved with athletes that were training for the Olympics, didn't you? And that was fairly clear and certain in your mind. And I was more focused on working with people who were doing Ironman at that time. And so then I think Graham Moore was interviewing for a coach, wasn't he? A head coach to come here i mean, in my mind, it was nailed on that you were going to get the job, but I know it wasn't that cut and dried.
1: No, well, that was the, the case when we obviously set up the performance centre. Then we had to have a head coach, and you you weren't that interested in doing it, so I I went for that. And yeah, there was a you know an open interview and uh, open sort of uh, jobs job uh,
0: search and everything. <coughs> yeah, I had
1: to go through a very stressful weekend of, of being interviewed for the job, but I did get it. Yeah.
0: I always knew you would, Jack. I have to say that, you know, I also felt that because you desperately wanted to do that job, it would have been a bit disingenuous of me to go for an interview because that would have just made it, you know, more competitive. I didn't didn't really want to do the job and it it just wasn't on my radar. I'd also, at that point in my own career, you you talked about working with professional sports teams. I was working with Yorkshire cricket around that time and I'd also worked at um, Huddersfield Giants. And in both of those situations... Working for um an organization or a team where the the staff that work there the support staff like the strength and fitness coach or the physio are often tied to the the head coach. You see this a lot in in football that if there's a if there's a clear out of the head coach, often those support staff go as well and on both occasions, certainly at Huddersfield Giants we'd won the um the minor premiership at, at Old Trafford, and then a few weeks later, I was out of a job. Um, It wasn't a full-time job, but I just, I had no control over that at all. And the same at Yorkshire Cricket. Um, And I never wanted to be at the sort of mercy of somebody else making decisions for political reasons, which is another reason I sort of didn't want to be a full-time employee of British Triathlon. Um,
1: Yes, and of course, you, you were absolutely right there, because that turned out to be the case. I mean, I was fortunate that Leeds Beckett University, as it is now, they liked the program that they were they were getting and they were prepared to increase their amount of investment into it um and i just went back to doing some private coaching for the remainder of my income and fortunately the athletes that we had at the time they they wanted to remain based in leeds so we just kept running the program um without the britishathlon support
0: I hope you're enjoying the show so far and learning a lot. If you aren't already a regular listener, I hope you feel you might come back. Please make sure to hit the subscribe button so you know whenever a new episode arrives. I publish these twice a week, ad-free, and with the mission of improving the health and performance of endurance athletes around the world. And to help me, I'd love it if you could share the episode with one person you think could benefit. If you have a couple more minutes, perhaps you could leave me a review on your chosen platform once you've finished listening to this episode. Okay, let's get back to the show. At what point did uh, did Malcolm come onto the radar then? Yeah, so Malcolm Bratton, he moved to
1: to Leeds at, at just about that point, um, 2004, because he became the head of... Uh, sport at the university and i hadn't met malcolm at that point in time but i i kind of knew that he was involved with uk athletics um uh, endurance squad so i thought he might be open to um, mm. you know a triathlon <laughs> program running at the university <clears throat> so yeah so we made that that sort of approach uh to malcolm and, and he was interested um but his main thing was coaching Endurance athletes as his sort of hobby job outside of his uh, uh, job as head of sport, Um, but then he ended up with first of all Alistair training with Malcolm's running group, and so his interest in triathlon came via that route. And um, yeah, in the fact that I was then running the program, and Malcolm and I all got on very well together, very similar. Minded in terms of the way we like to do things, so it sort of got stronger, and Malcolm got more interest in triathlon in the run up to
0: the 2012 Olympics. Mm. And I mean, obviously Malcolm had a performance mindset. He got a lot of experience of working um, at the highest level in athletics. So, and that that performance mindset, you can easily switch across to different sports, can't you? Even if you've you know, your experience of that sport's not quite as as broad. Yes, exactly. He was a very experienced coach. He had he'd, uh, experience of going to the
1: Olympics with uh, very high-performing athletes. So that that was something that I didn't have at that time. So, yeah, it was very useful to, to have Malcolm on board. And as I said, we worked very well together. Um, and he increasingly then did a lot of the, the run coaching for the athletes that were coming through the, the
0: Performance Centre. And, of course, Malcolm also had a huge range of contacts that perhaps you might not have had access to. Um, I think he brought Alison Rose to Leeds, didn't he? So that was the whole physio sort of athlete support, care support uh, structure that was starting to build up as well. Yes, and he probably, you know,
1: realised the importance of, of that too and and having good people and, yeah, certainly bringing Alison Rose to Leeds was was extremely useful. Mm. Yeah, for for everybody, really. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, it's been a, a very good legacy from that one.
0: Yeah. Okay, so then, um, of course, Alistair was just starting to get some traction, wasn't he? He'd been he he'd, he'd been injured. He'd not been injured. Um, I think was it two thousand and six and seven. He was sort of. Doing okay, but again getting injured. And for most of two thousand seven, he'd been injured. And he went to that end of season race, I think. Is that right? And really did very well. Was it? In, was it in Croatia or or Crete or somewhere?
1: Yeah, roads. I think. Yeah. Um, he. Yeah, I mean the, the irony was that in two thousand and seven, Alistair was um, was still the junior, so he wasn't. Mm. Um, he. He wasn't um, on the radar as far as getting place at the Olympics in, in, in 2008. But as we all know, he then went out, he had a, he had a World Cup at the end of that season where he, he came second. And then the next year, the selection race was in Madrid. And um, yeah, he managed to pull the result out of the bag and um, get himself selected for the, for the Beijing Olympics.
0: I can't remember at what point we got a sense of the way Alistair would race. Um, I seem to remember us being at Windsor one year, and I think it might have been Alistair and Phil Graves and a couple of others um, broke away off the front um, against all the established athletes. I think they got caught, but it gave a sense of this willingness to uh, risk something um, for a result rather than just sitting in the pack and use his running skill.
1: Yes uh, yeah yeah you're right I, I, I had slightly forgotten about that one but yeah I do remember that um yes and of course he, he did it in spades in Beijing where he was leading the um, the Olympics with three k to go.
0: yeah yeah um so he went to the Olympics uh, did you you went to you went to Beijing didn't you as well so what, what was that like for your first time?
1: yeah so I, I was fortunate to go on um, a British Olympic Association program for uh, future Olympic stars um, where they took youngsters and coaches from all the sports out to the Olympics to get a flavour for it based on the premise that people tended to do well at the second Olympic Games. Mm. So by taking them out there... um, when they weren't actually on the team, but still getting an idea of the enormity of, of the Games and, and all that type of thing um, might be a way of getting those first Olympic results a bit better. So, yeah, so I went out um, and um, Johnny was was one of the two athletes that we took, so we got to go and see Alistair race and go to see him in the village and um, go to... Um, the British Olympic Association holding camp in Macau, um, so we got you know a reasonably good flavour of of being at Olympic Games, but without any of the pressure mm. <laughs> that is actually there when you when you're
0: going to try and actually really get a result. Just think back to that time at the Leeds Performance Centre and the the talent academy right right through to two thousand eight, maybe maybe to 2000, uh, 2012, You know, you were like we all were really in at the deep end there wasn't really any there wasn't really any history of that there wasn't really anything anybody or anything to refer to in terms of how it had been done before and what challenges they might face so you were you were learning on the go with two athletes that were coming through so they had no prior experience so um then as, as much as you had success in building that there must have been a few mistakes that you made along the way that have that have helped you in in sort of develop as a coach since then
1: yeah undoubtedly i mean i think I think the classic one was that I remember when I did my presentation for the um job interview in two thousand and four I had a five year plan which you know included having a whole team of people from Leeds in the 2008 Olympics, <laughs> and you know, you were just a few years too soon. Well, exactly, we did get there by 2016, but it um, it took an additional eight, eight years beyond my rather optimistic thoughts. But it, it did, I did have this, and I, I still believe this that there's talent everywhere, and I was looking at athletes from the sort of Leeds area that had done well in the Olympics and done well in triathlon previously. And I just thought there's got to be more people like that around. So we had people like Richard Allen from mm-hmm. Otley, for example. Um so it wasn't um it wasn't a surprise to me that we had other athletes who were able to come through. But um yeah it just took a lot longer to
0: develop than I um was
1: anticipating.
0: Mm. Any, any other sort of more fundamental coaching mistakes rather than organization ones that you', you sort of look back on and think, make you shudder?" Um,
1: yeah, there probably are. I mean, it's always difficult to get the balance between developing a, an environment and a squad and looking after individual athletes. And I think that's, that's really tricky. And I probably put a stronger emphasis on environmental and squad development as opposed to um, overly working with individuals. Mm. Um, and probably for a few reasons. I think the fact that Alistair was a very independent athlete and liked to, you know, he, he, he wanted to um, be in control of his own uh, destiny and um and and was very driven and you know had a had a lot to bring to it so i allowed um i learned from what alistair was was
0: doing, and i tried to sort of give him an environment where that could sort of flourish. I mean that's quite interesting as well. Is giving athletes that autonomy because Alistair's quite young then, and although he's you know we know we know he's very intelligent, and we know he's he's not just intelligent, but he's got a he's got a critical thinking mindset as well. Um, but still, there's a lot of coaches out there that would like to have to control about the program and um, giving somebody that sort of autonomy. Um, might be seen as quite a risk or is that is that your general mindset anyway to um allow people to make mistakes and then ask them to reflect on it rather than trying to tell them in advance what they should be doing
1: yeah i think it is my general uh mindset i i think the thing about the individual is you really want things to be driven by them Mm. and um it's if you start to try to overly control things then it's probably not going to work out because that sort of intrinsic drive um, if somebody wants to try something out then do you want to stop them or do you want them to let them try it out and then learn from mm. what what occurs either successful or unsuccessful because if you just stifle it completely then you'll never find out if that could have been a successful thing for them to do which mm. it might have been and they will never have actually experienced it for themselves if it was unsuccessful. So they'll still think, oh, I could have, should have done that. I should have done it that way. I should have tried that. Um, but if they try it, it doesn't work out, then that can be put to bed.
0: Well, I'm sure we can all remember as growing up that you, your mum would have said, don't put your hand on the <laughs> stove, Jack, because it's hot. But you still went and did it anyway, didn't you? And you learned a big lesson when you your hand hurt. But OK, so... That's a great approach to Matt, your your sort of um, give the athlete autonomy with an athlete who wants to be in control. But what happens when you come across an athlete who wants to be guided and led a bit more? Then how does that play into your coaching approach?
1: Yeah, well, I, th- I think the thing is that you're always trying to manipulate the um, the environment so that athletes can make good choices. So I think that's, that's really important. So even for that very... Um, self-driven and um, self-contained athlete make sure that they have appropriate stuff around them and appropriate people so there's the team aspect as well the 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 good physio the good running coach good strength and conditioning coach all of these things um, that the sessions that are available to them are you know appropriate at good times, allow for enough recovery and and, and all of this sort of thing. So you can do a lot structurally as as a coach and still be fairly Mm. hands-off. It's definitely trickier when it comes to, as you say, those athletes who perhaps have a desire for being Mm. dictated to a bit more. Um, So you're trying to... um, you're trying to get them to take more uh, control of themselves. That's, that's definitely the underlying idea. But, yeah, I think looking back, perhaps could have done more to work with individuals. But it's really difficult because the more time and energy you spend on that, then the less you can spend on the overall so you've got, to, mm. you've got to sort of think about, well, at the end of the day, what's going to be the most successful? So I'm always trying to keep a, a look on the, the long term.
0: Yeah, I guess it would have been if you just had Alistair and, and Johnny to look after, then you might have been able to be more hands-on, but you were running a programme by then, so you were putting on sessions for a squad. There were the cycling sessions. I, I know Malcolm looked after a lot of the running uh, for you, but still, you know, you're having, to, you're having to spin a lot of plates there. And like you say, there's only so many resources and so much time that you have. Uh, and I guess you have to pull the biggest levers first, right? Yes, exactly. Exactly that.
1: But more recently, working with Beth Potter, I've had kind of the opposite scenario. where I've, I've literally just had the one athlete. Um, so I've been able to to be much more um abreast of exactly what Beth's doing and 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 the, and um and developing her as that one athlete, which has been really nice in some ways, but it's also greater responsibility in some ways as well, because you you have literally just got the one athlete who who's got to get the performances, mm. as opposed to when I had a squad
0: of 16 athletes, you could be pretty confident that some of them are going to be in form yeah. at any given time. I think the other thing as well is when you're when you're running a squad like that, you're definitely a manager because you're also look and you're running a centre. You're looking after budgets, you're selecting teams. Um, there are people who are going to be making the grade or people who are moving on. So, in some ways, that takes you a step away from coaching, doesn't it, into overall um, into more of a managerial role, um, which a lot of coaches perhaps wouldn't be comfortable with.
1: Well, yeah, it does. But I think that one thing that we did do is that. Yeah, you know, Malcolm and myself are very much hands-on coaches. You know, I, I was coaching pretty much every day with the athletes, uh, and Malcolm was also seeing them multiple times per week. So we had the same people that were doing the management and the coaching. So that meant that all kind of management decisions were being done by coaches. Mm-hmm. And I think that was the strength. Yeah, that was definitely strength that we had because we were coaches first and foremost and so we would always see it from that perspective and I, and i think that was a really good strength that we had
0: yeah uh, if we just rewind a bit remember when we started those talent id programs there was there was about 7 or 8 around the country weren't there in various different regions and everybody was given a fairly autonomous role to with that brief from paul um but we had a budget as well that we you know couldn't shouldn't exceed for the monthly camps you know we needed to meet certain criteria um And so we were always looking at budget, you know, what can we afford? Can we, can we catch this? Can we get somebody to give us that for free? Which, which facility should we go to where it's going to fall into the budget? How are we going to transport everybody there? Um, So we did start to get a feel for that. And I felt we did pretty well at that between us, you know, um, managing the bookings as well and getting everybody transferred to and fro. But I know that some of the other coaches that were more, I'm a coach, um, struggled with that, didn't they, in some of the other regions. And so, um, uh, whilst, it, whilst when you're talking about it, it seems like it came fairly natural I don't think it does come natural to a lot of coaches and, and we see that I think if you look at private coaching the one-to-one stuff that, that we've also both done um, there are some coaches who are brilliant at working with people but not very good at promoting or running their businesses
1: and vice versa as well You've Probably have got people that are very good at the business side of things but yeah, not necessarily yes.
0: so good at coaching so it <laughs> can work both ways there's, there's a rabbit hole we might disappear down <laughs>
1: um but yeah, no, and I think I mean we were very fortunate, and one of the things that was very good from that time with the with the junior program was that we had these people like Glenn Cook and Robin Bruce, Steve Lumley, um, that were Dave Parry, that were part of our coaching group, mm. and we would come together on a fairly regular basis and have these discussions about things like selection and policies and all this type of thing and that was a really good learning experience because we were all feeling our way to some degree, Mm. but there was a lot of experience in the room. So we were able to, uh,
0: we were all able to learn a lot. Mm. Yeah. Now you talked about, um, we talked about Malcolm coming to Leeds and then we talked about Alison. Um, Team building's always been a part of what I feel like has contributed to your success. Um, I think we might have, Had some exposure to the way they were doing things at British Cycling, where, you know, um, this isn't your athlete, this is the athlete that we're looking after, and we're going to have experts in that are looking after it. And when everybody does a report, they report back about how's this guy doing with the nutrition, the strength, the rehab, the training. And then there's one coach that's guiding that person like a program manager, but nobody's in overall control. Talk about your how you went about building the team in Leeds, because I feel that like, I do feel like that was an important part of the success there.
1: Yeah, I mean I think I guess it's a general principle is that if you if you find an expert in an area, then trust them to do their job. And don't be over their shoulder l- l- looking at what they're doing or trying to control what they're doing all the time. So you know, and we were fortunate with, with people like Malcolm and Alison and, and, and um, yeah, various other people that we were able to do that.
0: Yeah, you had um, Ian Piper as well, didn't you, came in. So he was involved on the strength and conditioning side and he was also pretty good at managing a lot of stuff as well and he had a good relationship with the athletes. So that sort of started to work quite well once once you got the Brownlee Centre
1: Yeah, and that that was quite a a
0: bit down the road at that point. But yeah,
1: definitely. Yeah,
0: Yeah. and I think when we, again, you know, for the the coaches who are listening to this that work with age groupers might think, well, I need to be an expert on swimming so I can analyse somebody's swim stroke. And then I need to learn how to video somebody in the pool. And then I need to go on a course that teaches me about running mechanics and how to correct those. And uh, I need to be expert at using training peaks. You can spend so much time on the technical aspects of each individual sport um, that that becomes overwhelming in itself. And back to your point there, you know, you, I, I do think, and it's something we emphasize in coach education, that it's not necessary to be an expert in each of the individual areas as long as you know who the experts are and you can get them on your side. But you do need to have an understanding of each of the areas. Yeah,
1: I think I think it's definitely good to have a broad understanding um, of as, as much as possible but there are always going to be areas where you c- you can just not be an expert I mean med- medical medical side of things is an obvious one whereby you you have got to take professional um, mm. advice there haven't you you know you, you're <coughs> not going to usurp what a, what a doctor is saying when it's a medical issue uh, to a similar degree with the physiotherapy stuff as well so And once you've, you know, realized that, then you need to also perhaps um, take that on board in other areas. Sports psych is another area perhaps whereby Mm. you have, as a coach, it's something you're probably doing almost constantly, but you haven't got the training to really Mm. um, do something in depth with an athlete who might need it.
0: I remember quite early on in our journey um, that we went to visit Ian Grayson, who was head coach at, at Leeds. Do you remember going down to the old Leeds International Pool and standing on poolside watching him working with 15 stopwatches while you and I were trying <laughs> to work with two and getting some times for him? But um, you were always open to the idea of learning from other coaches and going to shadow people in different sports as well, weren't you? I know that's something we encourage in the High Performing Coach programme. Um Talk about some of those influences that you were able to tap into as you develop your triathlon coaching.
1: Yeah, well, the one with, with Ian was, was good and, uh, you know, we were able to go down there. So that was in the, the run-up, I think, to the Athens Olympics where he, he had a couple of prospects for getting onto the Olympic team. And um, for about six months, I think we went down once a week to to sort of see that uh, unfolding. And yeah, definitely, that was definitely a, a very useful experience. And I think for me personally, the reason that I did that in particular was because I didn't feel that I had much experience in swim coaching. Hmm. Uh, And alongside that, I also started a weekly swim squad just for the sort of age group athletes in the the area, um, which I think you subsequently took on that program and ran that for many, many years afterwards. But that was so that I had both sides of the coin, really. I had some um, ideas from watching a you know a top-level coach, and then I had a group of athletes where I could work with them and find out how to improve those athletes, because you need that side. You need the experience side of coaching as well, don't you? It's, it's knowledge and then experience that, um, that turns you into a coach.
0: Yeah, and I think, it's, again, it, it seems like it's – You know, when you watch those people, it's quite an easy thing to do. It's not just about writing the session and timing everybody and learning how to manipulate uh, a few stopwatches in your hands. It's You've got different personalities. You've got different, certainly in age group swimming, you've got definitely got different levels even within the same lane. Um, You've got different motivations. Um, Each person's wanting you to look at their technique while you're trying to time the others. Uh, There's a lot of things to juggle there. Um, And after a while everything seems to slow down and you're able to deal with it all. But then I remember we had some people come along and try to help us and they were struggling they were getting overwhelmed by taking time with two stopwatches, never mind, providing coaching guidance.
1: Yeah, and I don't think that we appreciated Ian's coaching skill at the time because we didn't have, or I, certainly I didn't have enough knowledge to, to actually understand how he was coaching. Mm. But it was still interesting and and you can look back on it. And, and understand that there was more to it than what uh, you first thought.
0: Yeah, I, I prior to that, I was doing some work with the Olympic swimmers because Terry, t- Terry Dennison was the Leeds head coach before Ian um, up to Sydney Olympics in 2000. And I was working with some of his um, Olympic prospects. Ends. I think there was about half a dozen of them doing the strength and conditioning. But I did used to go on poolside and watch because I felt like that was useful. And I know... That was something Malcolm used to do, wasn't it? He's not a swim coach, but he used to come down and watch the swimmers because you just get an idea of the enthusiasm of athletes, how they're moving, what, what else they're doing, and um, a broader picture. And so um, just observing Terry's interaction with the swimmers and, you know, greeting them on poolside, little bits of banter, you know, dealing with the difference between male and female athletes, younger athletes and older athletes, was is also a, an interesting part of the mix, isn't it? Um, because when you've got a squad you do have all of those things interacting yes exactly and a lot of it's quite subtle
1: not necessarily um, they may not even be aware of what they're doing
0: yeah yeah for sure so let's 2007 British Triathlon pulled the plug um, but you, you did have one um, card in your hand that, that Alistair was sort of becoming an ever more prominent figure in British Triathlon and then he went to it um, <clears throat> went to Beijing, performed very well, and of course, after that, then 2009, we became pretty dominant, you know, um, in the world, and we were pointing towards London 2012 then as well, weren't we? So, uh, um, talk us through that lead up to a home Olympics with somebody who became a favourite for a medal and the pressure that that brought, and everything else on top of being the head coach.
1: Yeah, so there was definitely a lot went on there, so. I guess we rebuilt the programme bit by bit um, because British Triathlon would provide some funding for athletes that were on programme, so we kind of built up our support in two ways. One was by bringing new athletes onto programme, and the other way was um, getting the athletes we already had onto higher levels of the programme that then attracted a bit more funding. So after a few years, we were we were actually getting more more funding than we had been when we were funded. <laughs> um, so we had money for facilities, which allowed us to hire the fifty meter lanes at um, Leeds International Pool at that time, and then um, and then yeah, subsequently the, the the new pool, and yeah, money for coaching. So I was able to do less private work and more work with the uh, with the with squad. So yeah, it all kind of um, gradually got larger um, over, over that time. Leeds University came on board as a, as a partner as well. So we had access to their new pool uh, and access to more athletes, student athletes. Uh, people like uh, Tom Bishop and Georgia Taylor-Brown came to Leeds Uh Stanford, all of them were in Leeds prior to 2012. So we had quite a uh, a good squad there mm. at that point. But there were, you know, there were difficulties going on in the background as well. Um, British Triathlon's head coach resigned um, in the run-up to the 2012 Olympics. Malcolm <clears throat> was brought in as a as somebody to steady the ship and sort of manage the Olympic program through to through to London, which was uh, a very good move. <laughs> um, and uh, but it was useful, I guess. For us, because then by that time, Alistair and Johnny, as, as you said, were having fantastic results on the world stage and, and were definitely uh, medal favourites going into, into 2012, um, which is the situation that you'd always want to have yeah. to be in that situation. And with it being the, the home games, there was a tremendous amount of, of hype around it, of expectation and
0: things happening. You talked about going to Beijing um, with entirely with the view of you know, developing athletes, but also coaches for experience for the next Olympics, <clears throat> which was London. How did the experience of being in Beijing um, set you up um, for coping with everything that came up <laughs> to London, or, or couldn't it really, when it was a home Olympics?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it, it was useful, but it was a completely different magnitude of 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 pressure and everything coming into london you know that was my first real experience of being in that environment with athletes who were expected to win medals mm-hmm. and there's no doubt it's very difficult but it was also a good learning experience as well um and um we were fortunate i guess one of the good things about it being a home games was that we were literally able to prepare in Leeds right up until the last moment. Mm -hmm. We we, we did an altitude camp and and, and, and things like that too. But immediately prior to the Games, we effectively had our our holding camp in Leeds. Um, I remember Malcolm had had to go down to London because of his wider responsibilities for the whole team. Uh, The women's race is prior to the men's race. So um, myself and... Ian Mitchell were um, coaching Alistair and Johnny's last track session uh, at Leeds Becker uh, with some problems with access to the track because the Chinese Olympic team had um, booked it out. <laughs> so again, um, not entirely smooth, but yeah, they did a good session. And, and then I, Mitch took me down to the station and dropped me off to go down. So that I was in London to watch the women's race the next day. And the guys followed on the train um, later in time for their race
0: um you said that you definitely learned some lessons from that what what can you think of any in particular that stand out? Well, I think that when you're
1: very well prepared for something the the danger is that you you start to take your attention to what could go wrong you mm. know it's very, very easy to start thinking about the things that could go wrong. Um, and therefore getting into a sort of bit of an, an, a negative um, mindset about it. And it's just, you know, it's natural. But I think you just have to keep bringing your focus back to the, the positives.
0: Thank you again to Jack for being my guest on the show this week. I can't believe it's taken me seven years of running the podcast to get around having him on as a guest to share his life journey. Now, if you haven't already seen them, Please check out our new bite-sized podcast episodes, which are released every Saturday. They're approximately 10 minutes in length, and I share some insights on some very specific topics. To make sure you check out the show notes below for links to all of the items that I've mentioned today. If you could share this episode with one person you think could benefit... That will be absolutely amazing. And if you have a couple more minutes, perhaps you could leave me a review on your chosen platform once you've finished listening to this episode. All right, that's all for this week. Next week, Jack and I talk about London 2012, Rio 2016, moving on from the Leeds Performance Centre and Jack's working relationship with Beth Potter. I hope you'll be able to join us.